Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official screenwriting podcast number 13. I'm Adam Levenberg, and this week I'm going to be talking about Oz the Great and Powerful and Drag Me to Hell. These are both Sam Raimi's uh, last two movies, and they are incredibly similar when it comes to the character's internal problem or the internal need, as you might call it, or as John Truby calls it. So I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. I, I have gotten some interesting questions. One of them is, do you need more than one script? Or do you need, a, you know, a feature script and a sitcom script? Or, you know, there's no proper answers. If you don't have any interest in writing sitcoms, then, you know, don't write one. Um, and don't learn about it. But if you do, then by all means, you should you should do that. And by the way, I should elaborate that the question comes when it comes to finding an agent or manager. Should you have more than one script? Um, I, you know, my gut feeling is if somebody reads your script and loves it, why would you need a second script? Do you think the person, because remember, that's what an agent or manager is looking at. And by the way, today it's far more managers who are taking on clients, developing them, developing the scripts, and then giving the agent to sort of help pretty much with the sale of it, because and that's all agents have time for. They're, they're covering a lot more clients generally. Um, but I, I really think that what you want to avoid is being that writer who says, oh, I have a horror and a, and a comedy and a romantic comedy and an action movie, and which one do you want? You know, that to me, it often says that you don't know which one you think is best. And when people hire me for consultations and they send me more than one script, and I, I usually, I only let people hire me for two at one time. I think it's ridiculous to let people hire for other for more than that because I'm going to tell you things about your writing that sort of would invalidate at least most of the other things you've written. But if you don't know which script is your better one, then you have some real issues and that's the kind of thing I can be helpful with. Um, because, you know, the chances that you've delivered on any more than one script before you get in a manager is incredibly unlikely. It's just not how it works. Um, so you don't need more than one script, but of course, the chances are that you're going to have to work on more than one script because as time goes on, um, you're going to hopefully develop your craft. You're hopefully going to get better from script to script. The only way you will do that is with appropriate feedback, and how you get that feedback is totally up to you. But um, do you need a bunch of different genres? Absolutely not. You should know what your number one script is at any point in time. And your number one script is something that somebody wants to buy, that you think somebody would want to buy. Not what you think necessarily is the absolute, you know, sort of pinnacle of your writing quality. Um, I want to talk about a couple other things. Today, I got a tweet from Julian who tweets me a lot on Twitter, and he's got great questions. And he goes, God, I hate Save the Cat moments. Now, for those of you who don't know, buy the fucking book. Buy this Blake Snyder book. I can't believe you wouldn't have this book, and you should know it upside down, inside out. Because if you don't know that book, there's no way you're delivering a good script in 2013. Um... It's, it's sort of the, and, and by the way, it, just because you know that book does not mean that you know enough to write a great screenplay. Then you have to sort of delve into genre issues. But, um, you know, he wrote, I hate Save the Cat moments. Now, Save the Cat moments, for those of you who know the Blake Snyder beat sheet, Save the Cat moments generally happens around page seven, and it's the moment that we establish the hero sympathetic qualities. Not necessarily so that we like them, but so that we empathize with them a little bit and that we understand that they're kind of coming from a good place, even if they have a rough exterior. So in the movie Drag Me to Hell that we'll talk a little bit about today, the first or the original script of it, which is not what they filmed, started off with her saving a kitten. In the, that's how we meet her. She saves a cat in her opening 
uh, sequence. And this cat actually ended up in the movie, just they, they chose not to sort of go with that. Um, she does something else where she uh, she helps her boyfriend with the printer. He goes, oh, don't worry, it's broken, i got to buy a new one. And she gets in there with some tweezers and pulls out a paperclip that's stuck in there. So that's a nice thing that she does. So the... This, I would suggest that the, the Save the Cat moment, of course, is something that your hero does for somebody that is nice. And, of course, it's, the, it's based on the idea of, like, a hero helping an old lady with her cat in the tree. It has nothing to do with the plot. It's just something that gets us on board with your hero. Now, the lowest form of this and the most common form is, like, somebody randomly giving a homeless person money. Um, although you could show, you know, one popular thing that we do see in a lot of movies is that like a hero, especially someone who lives in a city, will be like really cool with like the homeless guy who lives outside of his building. Like he'll be talking with him like a real person. And therefore we think that our hero is a good guy because, hey, he's treating this homeless person like a human being. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that we have characters in movies sometimes who don't have these qualities and usually it's in comedies like Bad Santa or Bad Teacher or the upcoming Bad Words. Um, isn't that interesting? They all have the word bad in the title. And they're all based on the same sort of core type of character, the bore. Somebody who treats others with complete disdain and is completely selfish. And the interesting thing about these movies is the Save the Cat moment, the thing that it doesn't make us sympathize with them, but it fascinates us. Because the Save the Cat moment is the moment where we realize that this person does not exist in the realm of the traditional niceties or respect that human beings tend to afford other human beings. So it's the moment where they step over the line in a way that is so cutting or so inappropriate that we realize, whoa, this person is just sort of off on their own planet, but my God, is that fucking funny. And, you know, of course, the way that this character redeems themselves at the end is through a very small measure, which just shows that they're not going to be completely selfish anymore and recognize uh, that other people exist and that they need to be treated with some sort of respect. Moving on, um, if there's one thing you should do to improve your learning curve, maybe I've talked about this before, turn off the timer when, or I'm sorry, turn on the timer when watching DVDs or video files on your computer. Uh, you really, you know, one of the best ways to, to really learn Save the Cat, you know, you're not going to, you know, this really comes down to what one of the things that sort of pisses me off or, or, you know, people say, oh, I read this, but they didn't really learn it. And, you know, they read it and I say, well, is it, how many times did you read it? You know, um, I, I really think that part of learning is sort of backing up what you've taken in and looking at the different ways that it works. So the best way to do that is to have the timer going when you're watching DVD so that you can say, wow, this feels like all is lost. Oh, my God, I'm 74 minutes into the movie. Or you can be looking at your watch and saying this movie is not really working for me. I'm bored. We haven't even gotten to All is Lost yet, and we're at 85 minutes? How is that possible? And then, wait a minute, the, the movie's over at 100 minutes, so we just sort of compress all that junk into, but what the hell just happened for the last 40 minutes? Why were, you know, and you can then look and say, wow, the second act was just really off and bloated, and at the expense of everything that came afterwards. So I, I think that that's an interesting way that you can constantly sort of play with it, or maybe you'll find something that works. I, I, you know, that's that's possible. That works a little bit differently. And all movies work differently. It's your job to figure out, you know, sort of how yours should work. If there's one thing you should watch this week, if this is free. Uh, Todd Strauss-Schulson, who directed uh, Harold and Kumar uh, 3D, a very Harold and Kumar Christmas um, he directed a short called Valibation, which is a 20-minute short about a guy who 
his life revolves around his iPhone. It's always in his hand. It's how he communicates with the world. And one day he wakes up and the iPhone is missing and it has basically been implanted into his hand or it's merged into his hand. And it, it's sort of an exploration of how technology is now omnipresent in our lives and the fact that, you know, we'll all soon be wearing Google glasses and at some point probably have some sort of, you know, internal machines. You know, we'll all have these chips maybe inside of us. Um, this is what I would call a, a horror of metamorphosis film. And that's something, it's very similar to The Fly. The, the cool thing about this short is that um, he uses the fly. He uses a lot of great music and stuff. Um, he uses the David Cronenberg fly. And David Cronenberg is fascinated by this. He's done a lot of movies about the metamorphosis, the horror of metamorphosis, which, by the way, is sort of what Black Swan is, um, where a character physically changes in a relatively horrific way. So I would definitely check that out. It's free. And the cool thing is he uses the fly because I guess I don't know if he has any sort of rights to it or he got any sort of rights to do it. But, you know, if he's not trying to make money off this short, then I guess he doesn't need to. Who's going to stop him? Um, so I, I thought that that was uh, pretty cool. And he uses the fly. He shows it in the opening. He shows the, the character watching the movie The Fly and the fly, t you know, the Jeff Goldblum character physically turning into something else and the horror of that. And that's exactly what our hero in this short film deals with. And again, you know, this is a short film that's directed by a guy who's already directed a studio feature and a great studio feature at that so and he's working in a different medium and i think that's really cool because you know when you say directed a movie you know a lot of people dismiss the harold and kumar movies as silly comedies and they're all three all three of them are great films um but you know there's so much more to perhaps todd's career as a director and i think that you know whether or not he's maybe he wants studio executives to look at him in a different way and to say well because right now they're thinking wow this guy's fucking awesome with comedies do we have a comedy we can give him do we have another comedy maybe we can get this guy for this comedy but they're not necessarily saying oh we have this interesting horror movie or this thriller we should get him for that and i think that a, a short film like this is something that can sort of change somebody's mind or or, or sort of expand the horizons for a director who is looking to put together a career, which is not an interesting thing. You know, the, there's a huge drop off for every director who gets to make a studio film. Very, you know, only a small portion of those move on to their second studio film or third. You know, putting together a career is not the easiest thing to do. And, you know, we exist in a, in a world now where you can do so much more for yourself um, than before because there's you can make you can go out and make a film like Validation for maybe a couple thousand dollars and show that you're capable in another field. Um Real quickly, I want to I want to mention that if you're new to the podcast, definitely check out episodes three and twelve. In episode three, I talk about the six types of character arcs in movies, and twelve, I talk about horror and the new categories of horror. So I think that those two right now are the ones that I would most strongly recommend, and it's a good way. You know, if you want to immerse yourself in more episodes, I, I always think that there's you know with this there's sort of the core information episodes, and then there's the other fun stuff, or just hey, let's talk about some stuff this week. So definitely check out episodes 3 and 12, start there, and then download the other ones. And remember, you can you can subscribe to this through iTunes. Uh, please leave an iTunes review, by the way, because that's the only way that people find out about it. Um, all right, so let's move on to Oz the Great and Powerful. The movie made $80 million this weekend, 
And I'm going to say fuck the critics on this one because, you know, the the overall, it's it sort of, um, I haven't looked at Rotten Tomatoes today. As of a couple days ago, it was at 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, I'm not one of those people who necessarily looks at anything that gets over 50%, especially when we're talking about a big studio movie like this. Um, there's a pretty good chance that there's a lot of good stuff in the movie. And the one thing that I want to point out is that there is virtually, there are no bad reviews for this film. It is not a, a film that somebody can watch and say, what a terrible movie. It's not a bad movie. I can see people having issues with it, and those issues might be fair. Um, I don't disagree necessarily with the critics, but I loved it. And the, the film is such a visual treat. I, I haven't, maybe since The Matrix um, or Dick Tracy, I haven't been so enthralled with just the look of a film. And the last half hour is an absolutely spectacular visual uh, feast. I mean, the things that they're doing, and especially with the 3D, the way that Sam Raimi has used 3D, is something that should not be missed. And the story itself is pretty damn good. You know, we have two great uh, writers here. We have uh, we have the guy who wrote the whole nine yards, and the guy who wrote the the uh, I believe he wrote the play Rabbit Hole. And I'm saying that off the top of my head. I'm almost certain that that's the case. Um, so, in any case, um, you know the the film itself is it starts out, and I'm not going to give anything away, but. It starts out and it uses the Wizard of Oz technique of the four to three aspect ratio, which is like the television ratio, the way that the old movies used to sort of be more of a box than a rectangle uh, in terms of the cinematography. And it starts out with that. Um, and we get the opening act or the opening sequence where we learn all about this guy uh, who becomes Oz the Great and Powerful. We learn about this. He's basically a, you know, he's not a, he says he's a con man, but he's really not. He's a magician and he's a good magician. He's a traveling magician. He puts on shows and, you know, but he's also a womanizer. He's a liar. Um, he pretends like his magic is real. And he doesn't believe in himself. He, he, and, you know, it's interesting. We give him two moments that are absolutely heartbreaking in this opening. Again, I'm talking about the opening. I'm not giving away the end of the film. Um, but there's a scene where he puts on a magic show for people in a tent. And, you know, he ends up uh, wowing the crowd. He does some amazing stuff. And the little girl in the front row who's in a wheelchair says, you know, fix my legs please. And her parents stand up and say, hey, we'll give you, this is all the money we have. Please fix our daughter. You can do magic. And he, he can't, you know, he can't help her walk. And it's just really sad and awkward and upsetting for pretty much everybody involved, him, the, the kid, uh, the audience. And then he goes right back to his trailer and he's confronted with the love of his life, played by Michelle Williams, who will later in the film play Glinda the Good Witch. In this case, we're doing the Wizard of Oz thing where the, you know, the farmhands were the, the, uh, the characters in the Wizard of Oz. In any case, um, and she plays sort of the love of his life who's come to tell him that, hey, this other guy has proposed to me. And the subtext of this meeting or proposal is that she's willing to be with the, she's willing to be with him. She's telling him this so that he can make her another, a counteroffer. He can say, please marry me. And he won't do it. He believes that, you know, the guy that she's marrying is a good man. And he doesn't think that he's a good man. 
And he's willing to let her go, even though it's clear that he is deeply in love with her and she is deeply in love with him because he knows that he's a womanizer and a liar and he does not believe in himself and his own inherent goodness. And, you know, I'm going to suggest that his need, this internal problem that he has, is not that he needs to be good because that would be way too simple. You know, it'd be too simple that he is selfish and he is bad. Um, The need is that he just needs to understand that he is good. And we see that in that action because he's not willing, you know, when she comes in and says, hey, this other guy is trying to, you know, he's proposed to me. What should I do? Um, He's not saying, he's not trying to talk her out of it. And saying, hey, baby, come on, you know that I love you, you know that, you know, we'll be good together, and then going off and screwing around with a lot of other women. Um, So by letting her go and seeing how hard that is for him, he is showing that essentially he is good on the inside. And maybe that's the save the cat moment. I'd have to look a little bit closer. I mean... Uh, you know, it it shows that he does have this goodness, even if he doesn't understand it. And that's essentially what he needs to be able to do on his mission, which is to believe in himself. And that's something that is really overlaps with the core of what Drag Me to Hell is all about, which is a totally different sort of movie. Um, the other cool thing about The Wizard of Oz is that they do replicate a lot of the great moments from uh, the original Wizard of Oz. The the cool thing is that, you know, he goes on this journey through Oz and picks up characters along the way who sort of join him as a band of of characters, um, you know, so it's sort of a group of people meeting one along the way of this sort of road trip. Um, where by, by the third act, he has Glinda the Good Witch, he has this monkey who's sort of, his, a flying monkey who's sort of his manservant, if you will, who knows, by the way, that he is not magical, because that's one of the things. He comes into Oz and they say, oh, you're, you're the wizard. It's been told through great prophecy that you will be the person who comes down from the heavens and, you know, saves us and returns Oz to freedom. And he's, like, willing to go along with it because, hey, it's good to be the king. And he's like, hey, you mean that I'm going to be the king and I'm going to get all this gold and I'm going to be the ruler? Like, it's all good with him. And he's willing to play along. um, But he doesn't believe it. And it's interesting how they use the elements of the Wizard of Oz all along the way, including that last third act battle sequence, which is wonderful because you see sort of the the machinations occurring as to the the seeds being planted as to all the things that we know and love from the wizard of oz uh coming into play there in order to facilitate his battle against these two evil witches who are controlling oz and the emerald city um so i'm gonna move on real quickly um you know in the book uh the anatomy of story by john truby he talks about weakness and need And I think that it gets a little confusing because he talks about weakness and then he also talks about the character's problem and there's problem and there's need and what the hell is what. Um, And it can get a little bit confusing. But, you know, the thing that we have to remember is need is sort of that internal issue that the character is dealing with. Problem, or I would consider it initial goal. Maybe that, maybe it would be a better word for it because it's not really a problem. It's not a problem that in Drag Me to Hell, for example, her problem is that she wants to be promoted to assistant manager. That's her initial goal in the movie. And of course, her main goal in the film, 
revolves around what happens at the end of the first act, which is that she has a curse put on her, the curse lasts three days, and she will be dragged to hell literally unless she alleviates herself of this curse. So whether or not she becomes assistant manager at this branch of the bank is really secondary. So we often start our character off with an initial goal. And that's something we see that in 17 again, where he, he wants, Matthew Perry wants a promotion. But of course, by the end of the movie, he just wants to return to, his goal is, let me return to the person that I was. Um, so, but there's always this internal need. And the internal need is the problem inside the character. So Truby points out that, like, in Tootsie, Michael has to overcome his arrogance towards women and to stop lying and using women to get what he wants. Uh, Clarice in Silence of the Lambs must overcome the ghosts of her past and gain respect as a professional in a man's world. You know, it's sort of this this confidence is a really big thing that we often see with um, with characters, especially female characters. I'd have to... I'm not going to th- ruminate on that too much. Um, but in Drag Me to Hell, the entire character setup, her entire internal conflict, which is incredibly vibrant. And it's funny because when I talk to people about this movie, it goes over their heads. And you know what? A lot of this went over my head the first time I saw the film. But the way that we introduce the character is that she is in her car on the way to work and she's listening to a speech uh, CD. She's listening to an audio course where she's improving her dictation because she has a Midwest accent and she's now living in L.A. and she's trying to shed herself of this accent. And in the next shot, we see her exiting the car and we see her walk by a bakery and she looks into the window and looks at all the cakes and pastries and they all look delicious. And then she walks into the bank. And the thing about this character that is really central to the film, and it's one of the most prevalent internal conflicts that we see, is that in Drag Me to Hell, her problem is an eating disorder. And that is something that we end up uh, tracking throughout the entire movie in a couple of different ways. Um, Food is omnipresent in the film. It's, you know, uh, the bank manager, on almost every scene, there's something having to do with the mouth, with um, even the type of horror that there is. Most often, it's somebody or the gypsy vomiting into her mouth or things being vomited up. Um, and, and this is going on in almost every scene. So the things that I was looking for, um, I'll talk real quickly about the opening image versus closing image. That opening image with the bakery, she stops to look in the window and she is longing for all those goodies. And there's a couple things there. Notice that I'm calling that the opening image, even though we're six minutes into the movie at that point. That's because you really have to think of opening image and closing image as the images that are representative of your character. And they don't have to be first. It doesn't have to be the first thing that we see. In Drag Me to Hell, it doesn't matter. It's that we're setting up her eating disorder. And by the end of the film, the coolest thing, because it's so easy to miss, is she's walking through a train station and there's a woman with a cookie cart, which sort of doesn't make sense. I would say that's sort of bending reality in order to serve the purpose because I don't know that they have Mrs. Fields cookie carts where they give out samples. I've never seen one personally, but they have a Mrs. Fields cart with a woman in like a Mrs. Fields uniform with a tray and she offers, as Alison Loman is just walking through the train terminal, 
um, this woman sort of hand, holds the tray over and says, oh, would you like a sample? And she says, oh, no, thank you, and wa- keeps walking. And she never stops. She doesn't even look at the cookies. She doesn't stop and look at them. She doesn't pause. She doesn't even, I don't even think she makes eye contact with the woman. She's not rude about it, but she just keeps going. She's facing forward because this is no longer a temptation by battling the external conflict and her, by uh, sort of um, getting this demon out of her, she has changed as a result of this journey and she has healed the internal need that she has. Um, So all along the course of this movie, though, we see this internal issue coming to the forefront. People have pointed out that a lot of the a lot of the horror scenes take place in her kitchen. That's sort of true. A lot of stuff does happen in her kitchen. But we also see that she was fat. We see around page 30, she's making a cake and we see a picture of her that falls out and it's of her as a fat kid when she was the pork queen at some, you know, at some fair or something in the Midwest when she was a kid. And we see how fat she was. And she, like, rips up the picture and throws it out. And um, later on, we will have a horror scene where she brings the cake to her boyfriend's parents' house. And the, the all the horror of the scene, it's like this dinner party where there's this tension building as to whether or not she can hold her mind together and whether this curse is going to emerge in order to meet the potential in-laws for the first time. And um, she ends up totally losing her shit once that cake that she has baked is served, where an eyeball pops out of it and then flies are coming out of it and um, it, you know, sort of turns really ugly for her and she ends up totally losing her shit in the middle of this dinner party. Um, But that actually speaks to her internal need because when we meet the boyfriend, which is like nine minutes into the movie, she fixes his printer, she gives him a coin, which later has a huge payoff. And by the way, for those of you who are tracking that, there is a mention of his coin collection halfway through the movie during that dinner party where his dad goes, oh, how's your coin collection coming? There's a reason for that. I thought it was a second Save the Cat moment where she did something nice for him. She gives her boyfriend a coin that she found in general circulation that's very rare, and he puts it into an envelope, and that has huge dividends uh, later on that I won't, you know, ruin. But, um, so it's a plot point being established. But in in this case, um, as she's leaving, he gets a call from his mom, and he's got the mom on speakerphone, and he goes, oh, I just finished up lunch with Christine. And then his mom goes, oh, is that the, the farm girl? And he goes, yeah. And we see Christine's in the hallway. So he's having this conversation. He doesn't know that she's listening. And the mom says, oh, well, I want to introduce you to this other girl. Uh, you know, she would be really good for your career. She'd be good for your social life. She's sort of the right kind of person. Because Justin Long comes from a very wealthy family. And Allison Lohman comes from an alcoholic mother who lived on a farm. Um, And we see her not breaking down into tears, but we see the tears in her eyes as this mother is trying to sort of better deal her kid. And she's listening to just being dismissed. And the reason it has so much power is because we know that the character agrees with the mom. We know that she sort of understands and feels that she's dating above herself. And that's something that, you know, the the character sort of needs to deal with over the course of the movie. Um, So it speaks to her internal need, this feeling that she's not good enough the way that she is for this guy in her relationship. And it's a very sweet relationship. There's a lot of really nice moments in it. It does not sort of go down what I consider to be a very predictable path. Um, And he doesn't leave her around all is lost. Around page 75, he doesn't leave her. But here's another thing. 
she lies to him. I found that really interesting because usually around all is lost, the relationship that we're tracking in the film will implode. And that doesn't happen here. He sticks by her. He even gives her the money to have a seance where they're going to get rid of this demon that he doesn't even believe exists because they've brilliantly set up that he's a uh, he's in the psychology department at the university. He's a professor or, you know, associate professor in psychology. So, you know, for a lot of the movie, uh, especially the first half of the second act, he just believes that this is all in her head. It's all a result of this attack that she experienced. Uh, And of course, we know because we saw it that this attack at the end of it, she had a curse put on her. Um, but you know, the, the interesting thing about this is that at all is lost, she lies to him and that speaks to one of the elements of the eating disorder, which, or the addiction that she has to food, which is that she lies a lot about, about a few things in this movie. And she lies directly to him. She tells him that the curse has been lifted after the seance and it has not been. And she knows it. She knows she's telling him a lie. And we have that disruption in the relationship, which, again, I, I give the movie points for because usually it would be that he'd leave her or something and then come back or she'd she'd come back to him later. And the movie doesn't play like that. It does something that's a little bit more interesting. Um, the way that uh, I also want to talk real quickly about the physical manifestation of this character's internal conflict, because that's really key for a lot of horror movies. And in some ways, I would say that this represents, you can find this even in comedies, the villain or the opposition is often some version, some gross, expanded, overblown version of the hero's internal conflict. And in Drag Me to Hell, the villain, this gypsy woman, has has a lot of uh, physical features of eating, of people who have eating disorders. She has rotted teeth, Her fingernails are gross and brittle. Uh, She has bad skin. And, you know, the one thing that she doesn't have is bad hair. Her hair seems to be okay. But the way that the film deals with that is she rips out Christine's hair at every time that they have a conflict in this movie. At, at, At least three different points that I found. She rips her hair out which is, of course, a consequence of having um, certain eating disorders. So we are playing in this film with that element. Um, and I want to see if there's anything else here I want to talk about in terms of that. I'm going to move on. I think I've, I've covered the eating disorder stuff. You know, it's interesting. I'll talk about some other things because I'm developing a horror script with a writer who's going into production uh, this summer. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in future episodes. But one of the reasons that I watched Drag Me to Hell is because this film that we're working on is a is a supernatural horror film where a curse is involved. And I wanted to look at, well, how is the how does the curse unfold in Drag Me to Hell? So I'm just going to share that with you real quickly because, I, you know, whether or not you need to learn about how the curse in Drag Me to Hell works, I want you to sort of look at how I went and broke it down and looked for, okay, this is when things happen. You know, the opening credits or the opening sequence of Drag Me to Hell is about three minutes long. It takes place in the 1960s. And we see this boy who's brought to this house where a medium, a woman who communicates with the dead, they're bringing they're bringing him to her because three days ago he stole a necklace from a gypsy. And since then, he has been seeing things and having visions. And we see, so here's what this set, this scene is setting up. We're setting up the sin 
the fact this kid sinned by stealing, not a huge sin, but a sin, um, and that's what sort of created the curse or had the curse put upon him. Um, we set up that he's been experiencing this for three days. That's our ticking clock in the movie. We set that up immediately. Um, we see that there's flies buzzing around his face. We see shadows of demons that only the boy can see. And then we see the demons having physical capacity over reality, meaning that the the, the demons start sort of knocking people around, um, you know, hanging them upside down. And and we can see that these these things are not just going on in his head. There is sort of at the end of this curse, there is a very physical presence that this demon has in the world surrounding the person who is cursed. And then we see the boy getting dragged to hell. We see him literally, the floor, you know, a crack in the floor occurs, these demon arms come out and drag him to hell. And that is the consequence. That's what's going to happen to our hero. And the fun thing about this movie is that we actually then get a credit sequence that's about three minutes long. And over the opening credits, we get all this stuff again. We get pictures from old books of a woman in jeopardy, you know, experiencing this curse. And there's even the words, three-day time limit. I think that's what it said. Um, where the words three-day time limit are written in print, you know, uh, like, like a chapter heading or something. And we see flies, we see shadows, we see demons, we see a woman sort of struggling. Uh, you know, all this stuff sort of reestablishes it so that we know what our hero is in for because she's not going to get that information till a lot later. But we need to share it with the audience in some way or at least look to do it. I don't know that you have to do it um, because you could say, well, why don't we just learn about it when the hero learns about it? That's a really good point. I just I think that it makes it easier to to sort of go along with the movie if we know what's coming and we have a sense of what the rules are. And this film immediately establishes that. We see the curse sort of thrown down on this girl, uh, Christine, at around uh, minute 22. 22 minutes into the movie, we see the curse. That's the end of Act 1. And remember that this is only a 90-minute movie. It runs one hour and 39 minutes, but it's really not because we have a three-minute opening credit sequence and there's about like six minutes of credits at the end. So um, this is a 90-minute movie. So remember, you're going to want to sort of uh, revisit the Save the Cat of it all um, and, and sort of alter that so that the... You know, the end of Act 1 does not have to be page 25 if you only have a 90-minute movie. Um, and I know I've talked about 90-minute movies. You generally should not do them. But in horror, it's one of the times that you can do it. It's just about sort of re-establishing uh, the points that everything needs to happen at based on a mathematical sliding scale as to how many pages you're planning on, on writing. Um, so we have the curse on page 22, but she doesn't know anything about the curse. She's not even sure that a curse was put on her. She just sees this old woman say this stuff on a button and the world, you know, the wind picks up and stuff. And then around page 30, she meets Ram, who, the psychic advisor. And he, while he's giving her a reading, has this flash of a demon sort of jumping out at him. And he says, and he starts asking her about all these things. Have you, you know, been, have you been playing with the Ouija board? Have you been dealing with people who participate in the black arts? And then at the end of it, he says, perhaps someone has cursed you. And of course, that's what's going on. But that's so at page around page 30, she gets that she gets the hey, you've been cursed. And at page 44, and we have some scenes in between uh, where she's going to experience this curse. Page 44, she comes back to Ram. And this is when he tells her all the details of it. He tells her about the Lamia, which is the black goat, the the demon that is is haunting her. And um, 
you know, he suggests to her, well, one way you can stop this curse is to offer it a small creature. And Christine says, I can't kill an animal. I, lo- I, I volunteer at the puppy shelter. But she goes home and she has a horrific experience where this curse attacks her that's so upsetting that we then see her grab a knife afterwards and say, here, kitty, kitty, because we've established that she has a kitten. And she's killing her cat. She kills her cat. We don't see it. We see her throw it in the ground and then put some dirt on it. Um, Or we see her throwing dirt over the corpse of the cat because this experience was so terrifying. And that's a little bit of character development there or a little bit of character movement. I mean, usually when we talk about development, we're talking about the arc. Here, it's more about the descent of the character, the de-evolution of the character, that she is willing to kill a small, innocent creature that she loves in order to something that she didn't think she could do. Then at page 59, um, and when I say page, I mean minute or either way, you know, because I'm not doing this off of the script, I'm doing it off the movie. Uh, Ram offers to set up a seance to help her get rid of the demon. But there's a catch. It'll cost $10,000. So now we've given her a new problem, a new goal. And, you know, movies are all about this. It's about, you know, you hear about making your character active. Well, what does that mean? Well, between pages 59 and 65, it's all about how do I get the money to go to the next scene, to get to the seance. And we see her go to the pawn shop, and she can only get four grand for all the stuff that she owns. And then she comes home and she eats a huge tub of ice cream. And her boyfriend comes in and in a really sweet moment says, I gave him the $10,000. I don't know what it is that you're experiencing here. I don't know if you are you have a curse, but I love you and I know that you think that you need this. So I took care of it. It's a really sweet moment in the relationship. Then we have the seance and we learn a little bit more about the demon because he reje- the demon rejects the sacrifice. He throws up the kitten and she is splattered with, I don't know if it's saliva or stomach juices, but she's splattered by the juices that have come out when, after this cat is vomited up. Um, the sacrifice has been rejected. This demon wants her soul to burn in hell for all eternity and is not going to fall for any tricks or any sort of flattery. Now, after the seance, and I don't know if you want to call this part of the same scene, but this is sort of the eighth point that we're going to touch on, the rules regarding the curse. Ram says to her, well, you know, you can give the button away. You can give it to somebody else, but you're going to be giving them the curse. You're not just giving them the button, and they're going to be dragged to hell. And, you know, then we have, just like she had to go and get the $10,000, now she has an active thing to do because she needs to give this button away to somebody. And we see her go to a diner and sort of examining all the other people in the diner and trying to figure out who she's going to give this curse to. And again, it's an active goal. Um, And in the diner, we even touch on where she is going to, uh, we even bring back sort of her goal at the bank because... Uh, Stu Rubin, who is the character who's also up for this promotion that she's competing against, she figures out somehow, and I think the movie might have cut out how she finds this out. I'm not sure about that. Um, But she realizes that he's the reason that they lost the big account uh, that she had set up. And she brings him to the diner and she's about to give him the button. She's about to curse this opponent character that we all hate, who we love to hate because he's just so smarmy. And then he breaks down and cries and admits to it. And we see how pathetic he is and she can't do it. Um, And then she goes back to Ram at page 85 and he goes, well, you know, you can possibly give it away to a dead person. I think that that's possible. And that's sort of the final thing that Christine has to do. She has to get to the body of the gypsy and shove it in this woman's mouth by sunrise or else she'll be dragged to hell. 
And um, so there's nine different points where we sort of add to the rules about this curse. And to me, you know, the, the challenge is not when I'm working with this other writer, it's not, well, Drag Me to Hell did it like this, so therefore we need to do it like that. It was a recognition of, okay, this is how this film did it. What can we learn from this? What can we see? Okay, maybe it's not important that all the details of the curse are here at the end of uh, the first act. Because, you know, personally, I like that. I, I prefer for these things to sort of be laid out because otherwise you do run some risks. Um, and, and you do risk losing the audience if you don't sort of share. But this film did figure out two ways to share it in the opening pages. So in any case, um, and, and it also reinforced a really important part of the Save the Cat beat sheet, which is the ticking clock around the midpoint of the film. Isn't that interesting that he that right at the midpoint, 44 minutes into a 90-minute movie, the midpoint, that is when the ticking clock usually appears. Now, personally, again, I, I usually prefer that it um, that the ticking clock uh, be sort of inherent in the story and that the hero know about it. But and, and sometimes, by the way, you know, if you think of a movie like Miss Congeniality, the ticking clock is the pageant. So we know what the we know sort of the ticking clock. Um, but maybe if it's not concrete, it's OK to to wait on that. Um, and to address that at the midpoint. But you have to at the midpoint. You have to know what the ticking clock is. The audience has to know. The hero has to know. So that we know how much time the hero has to attain the big goal. All right, that's all I have for you this week. Please go out and see Oz the Great and Powerful. I think that you'll love it. And, you know, even if you don't, you'll, you'll sort of get a lot out of it. It is wonderful to look at. And, you know, email me. Uh, you're welcome to email me any questions. You can tweet me at Starter Script. I really appreciate if you leave an iTunes review. And, you know, I'm looking for ways to work with everybody who's listening to the podcast. I'm trying to figure out a way to do that. Um, so, you know, if you have any ideas as it relates to that, feel free to, to share those with me. You're welcome to go to my website, officialscreenwriting.com. I'll put up some of this, uh, the notes that I have on Drag Me to Hell that I was reading off of today. And, you know, uh, hey, check out my services page. See if there's any way that we can possibly work together, that I can give you some feedback on your scripts or talk to you for an hour and help you figure out, you know, whatever it is that you need to be doing in order to make it to the next step. Again, I'm Adam Levenberg. Thanks for listening. New show will be up next week.